You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Encore and C.L. Mitchell from the Living Truth Radio Broadcast. We are coming to you with a new podcast uh, that we are starting today in a new book called The Book of Jonah in the Scripture. Uh, We had just finished uh, recording, uh, actually it's been a few months, uh, The Book of Ruth that we had a wonderful time doing and thoroughly enjoyed. Um, A little bit about who we are. We like to um, get together and talk with the scriptures open and maybe coffee in hand or glass of water in hand and try to discover uh, and reflect on God's word, its riches, its practical application. And our goal is that you would uh, join us in listening and perhaps um, participating in your mind in reflecting on the goodness of God and the character of God. Now, we had did a, a short book before. The Book of Ruth was a short book. Uh, the Book of Jonah is another short book, but uh, the length of the book does not detract away from its significance. Uh, and what's especially uh, significant also is that Jonah is also a very familiar book to a lot of people. Uh, we'll get into that and hopefully get into some themes uh, that are that are there that maybe not as apparent. Um, so, but we haven't, uh, we haven't done this in quite a while, so it's good to get back, uh, to recording and, uh, we hope that you will uh, join us for this journey. We haven't done this in a while and it's good for us to have the opportunity to be back with, uh, our listeners. And we trust that, uh, you were blessed by our previous time together and we trust with this new venture that you'll be blessed as well. Uh, what's more, uh, we'd like to say a little bit about what we do just to rehearse um, um, our approach to our time together. Uh, John and I have uh, marvelously had the opportunity to fellowship now for some time together, and we have enjoyed in privacy and uh, via radio the opportunity simply to sit, study, and articulate the Word of God. And we kind of think of ourselves in in a relaxed environment, Mm -hmm. maybe with a cup of coffee or tea or hot chocolate or whatever your preference is. We hope that you will engage in the spirit of our gathering together, uh, and that is a relaxed atmosphere that is based upon the Bible as its foundation. Uh, God's Spirit is guiding us through the text with interpretive skills that appreciate the uh, veracity of the text, but also anticipate an application that draws us into intimacy with God prayerfully from which we'll not recover. In other words, we'll have a deeper relationship with him as a result. Now, before we get started, um, we are going to be making our previous recordings of Jonah, or Ruth rather, available online. Uh, We are in the midst of, uh, in the process rather, of uh, putting together a website and podcast site as well. Um, In the meantime, you can actually go to our our Facebook page, uh, Living Truth Radio Broadcast, and uh, you can hopefully find previous links there. But we are going to keep you sort of informed of when things are going to be released. 
And that will be the site that we will have all our recordings at, including hopefully in the future YouTube videos as well. So that is in the works. Um, and so just to give you a heads up on that in the meanwhile. We're hoping and trusting that you will uh, become regular listeners of our program. And we're trusting that the convenience of the nature of this program, namely podcast, uh, will allow you not only to uh, hear the archives, but will also allow you to uh, subscribe and become a regular listener and also forward the information to your friends. Our goal is not popularity. Our goal is a passionate communication of biblical truth that can be shared with others in a means that is consistent with the spirit of scripture and the attitude of love and to make it convenient enough for you so that uh, you will not only have it available to you, but again, that uh, you will share it and apply it within the framework of your life in a way that results in glorifying God. All right. Well, let's get started. And uh, probably just to jump in, because um, there's a lot we can talk about sort of as we approach the book of Jonah and sort of, you know... um, when it was written, what time, you know, what time period uh, is it taking place in, why we're studying this book. Um, what's, what's interesting is that Jonah, as, as a prophet of God, who's sent by God, um, really has a lot to say to today, to our church, to our time period today, uh, which is significant because sometimes when you read scripture, um, it seems so far away. It seems like it's the long ago, the far away. It's those people back then, you know. And the challenge, though, is often to say, okay, how do these events that happen in this book um, relate to us today? And we were going through, you know, there's, there's turmoil in our country, in our world. There's also, there's racial division. There's political division. There's all kinds of, you know, uh, modern issues that happen that seem to come across our our landscape and um, and you read the scripture and you find out, okay, these things happen. Now, what does it have to do with us? Well, hopefully in our study of the book of Jonah, we're going to discover some things about God and we're going to discover some things about the people of God and, uh, and how we as the people of God, as believers in Christ, are to sort of conduct ourselves within this world that has so many differing type of people and different opinions and whatnot. So uh, as we do that, um, that's something, a couple of things to reflect on. Um, but Jonah is a unique th- book as far as within the prophets. It's it's one of the, the minor prophet books and in the Old Testament. So uh, it's sort of unique in that aspect as well. It's not like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or or the rest of them as well. It's kind of unique. Yeah, it's it's distinct in uh, several ways that we'll point out in just a moment in the introduction. But I'd like to point out to uh, our listeners that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, this is important because it means that whilst Jonah was in the situation Uh, of a historical nature, we'll argue that that situation was in fact the content as recorded in scripture, God breathed. This is the word of the Lord. And a lot of people aren't familiar with these little sections of scripture uh, within the framework of the First Testament. And so uh, because we tend in modernity to be more... um, 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 uh, 
endeared toward the New Testament and that right. literature that's more easy to understand, um, uh, we tend to ignore this this vast section section of Scripture that is actually the largest portion of our Bible. Right. Uh, and uh, in ignoring that, we are ignoring, according to the Apostle Paul, a section that is in fact inspired of God. Uh, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, so we should approach this with great reverence and and uh, great appreciation, because this, no less than any of the other books that we study, is indeed and in fact the Word of God. Now, it depends on who you talk to. You know, when you hear a story, okay, here's Jonah, okay, everybody knows he's eaten by a whale, okay, even though scripture doesn't say that specifically. You know, it's a story, it's a, it's fictional, it's an allegory, you know, it's it's a parable, you know, there's different different approaches to, to books like this in the scripture. And those are, you know, different view, uh, viewpoints, and there's there's strong arguments on all sides of the, uh, of, of the interpretation of how this is. Um, you have to be careful, though, to call it just an allegory or just a parable uh, and to divorce it from actual historical fact, you know, especially since the scripture does point out that there was a Jonah that lived at a certain period of time. And that, um, in fact, if uh, in Second Kings 14, I think it is, it speaks of this time period, uh, the time period of the Assyrians, the, the, uh, the time period when there was, there was uh, Jonah was a prophet of God. Uh, just a couple of verses in that chapter speak of that, um, and there is a historical basis to that. So you have to be careful and think, well, this is just an allegory, and these things didn't really actually happen, because the Scripture doesn't purport it or doesn't report it as an allegory, doesn't report it as just a fictional story. In fact, Jesus himself points out that the people of Nineveh, uh, who had repented, uh, would uh, receive greater sort of, not grace, but uh, would, uh, would come out on top, so to speak, against the certain people that rejected Christ at his time period. Um, you also have him affirming the actual existence of Jonah. So if you come to it and say this is an actual book, it's an actual historical fact, a story, then the question then is, okay, what does that have to teach us, you know, besides whether it, it's uh, historical or narrative or, um, or just a story, you have to approach it that says, okay, if this is real or uh, these things teaching us actual things that happened with the purpose of telling what? Us about God and uh, well here's here's what i want to um suggest first of all for those individuals who argue that it's an allegory what do they mean by that they mean that the story is not true right that it's representative of some concept of truth that stands behind it uh, so this entire narrative all four chapters would be fictive it, right. it would be fallacious as it were but the real point behind it is is the nation of israel right. and their misunderstanding of their important role mythologically right. to the gentilic nations right. of the world um, and and so that's what they do and one of the one of the means by which they arrive at that position is because the name of the prophet means dove, dove yeah and so they take that as a as a um, uh, as a platform if you will to shoot off into the book and and think of the book in an allegorical manner and and that does not seem to be the nature of the book but for those individuals who look at it as a as a parabolic book 
they would suggest, well, okay, uh, it has all of these details really have one point. Right. And again, it's not necessarily real. It's sort of uh, an analogy, as it were. But the analogy is really trying to tell us one major truth. And that one major truth that it's trying to tell us is something about how God values right. uh, all people and longs to have salvific compassion on them. Now, there's several problems with that because, like for instance, in uh, chapter number one, we're told that uh, this man's name, which does mean dove, right. is not only Jonah, but we're told where he comes from. Right geographically and we know that that geography exists in yeah. fact he comes from an area of galilee yeah. that's not too far from nazareth right right Naz- where yeah. jesus comes yeah. from so if we dispel him we have to also dismiss his geography in which we know that uh, it was real and the location just up the road of sort was right. real so the geography would argue for that secondarily we're given his father's name right now it's highly unlikely in in a parabolic um uh, situation that you would give all of this history, as it were. We're given the history of the Assyrians, who we know right. were valid people. Uh, we know that Sennacherib was a real person, and he's going to be mentioned in the uh, book of Isaiah and also dealt with in Kings. Right. Uh, we know that uh, Nineveh is a historical locale as part of Assyria and as was at one time the major capital of that city. I mean, there's several details so that an, we know. There's enough historical things in there that that tell us this is actual. Now, now some would say it could be a midrash that there's some historical uh, things that happen, but there's a commentary on okay, sort of like this is what happens to the people of God or something like that. But there's not, there's really, there's not enough to say. Okay, if, if you approach it as this is just allegory, okay, mm-hmm. um, then at some point the scripture actually has to point that out. But from the start, it says this is Jonah, son of. Um, because that's name off the top of my head, son Amitai. of Amitai, um, who lived in a certain place, you know, from uh, from Galilee, went, goes to, is supposed to go to Nineveh, flees to another place, Tarshish. Now, they're not really certain exactly where Tarshish was. They know it was far away along the Mediterranean coast. But there are certain enough historical facts that are there that weigh heavily on the conclusion. Hopefully, that will be like, okay, this is an actual fact. Now, the things that, the reason why there is pause to the interpretation of being historical is because of the, the fish, uh, the miracle that happens there, you know? Um, there's also the idea that perhaps this is a story to tell the, um, sort of a, a, an allegory of the, the story of Israel, right? They're, they're, you know, they're, um, uh, them as a nation, they're they're taken the by, by the Babylonians that or the Assyrians first, you know, then the Babylonians. Maybe that's sort of like the fish swallowing them up, and then they're spit out. And to tell, you know, that that gets into a lot of conjecture. You know, um, it's interpretive gymnastics. Right. In fact, if the regular or normative reading of the text makes sense. There is no need to seek any other sense. Right. And that should become a governing rule when we interpret. What's more, and I think this really becomes what we place our anchor in. If, in fact, it's not historical, then Jesus himself is incorrect. See, that to me is always the trump card. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Jesus says, I mean, points out the historicity. In fact, he points out just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish, so the Son of Man will be and pointed to his burial and resurrection. And he also talks about, as I mentioned before, about 
the people of Nineveh. He mentions that twice, once I think in, in Luke and I think another time in Mark or something where he mentions the people of Nineveh that, that repented at the preaching of Jonah as a, as a contrast with certain towns that Jesus went to that they didn't repent and they had somebody that was even greater. Um, and so he points out to the historicity of, of, of these Ninevites and Jonah's mission as well. Well, I, I, and here's where I really want people to anchor themselves um, in the historicity of this uh, book and its details or its content, that Jesus literally ties a rope around the gospel. And the uh, period that he spends in the grave and the resurrection to this story. And in tying that rope, here's the idea that if in fact this story sinks as a result of the words of Jesus, right. uh, the resurrection sinks. Right. And the, 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 which is, by the way, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, the very basis of yeah, our salvation our yeah. if he's not risen from the dead, right. right? And so if in fact, and I just want them to think through the idea, if this story is fictional, that story is too, according right. to Jesus. If this story is allegorical, then the resurrection is allegorical. Right. If it's parabolic, then the resurrection is parabolic. But if it is historical, then the resurrection is historical. And this is why I often say to people that we should think of the Bible and theology as a well-woven sweater right. uh, uh, that that is so intricately interconnected, as it were, uh, that if you pull one string, other things come apart right. that may in fact be but, detrimental to the entire garment and itself. And I know we're, we haven't even gotten to the book yet. We're just right. talking background stuff. But how you approach any book of the Bible um, and understanding its genre, understanding its, its historicity, um, if you were... If, at some point, you're going to read things and say, okay, this doesn't happen. You know, a fish eating a, a person and living, you know. At some point, you understand that the Bible is, is a, a historical book as well as a book of faith where there's things that, that, that it reports that you have to say, I have to believe or not believe that or I choose to believe that and I don't understand how that happens. I mean, how do you explain a virgin birth? How do you explain a snake talking? You know, you know. Yes. How do you explain uh, water being separated? You know, the, the 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 Red Sea and and later on the Jordan being separated so people go. How do you? Those are miracles. Okay, that's why that's the whole content of the the scripture is pointing to a miraculous God and sort of interrupting or invading our history or directing our history. So, just as far as as, as approaching any book of the Bible, you're gonna there's gonna be things you read in it that doesn't happen every day but again it's pointing to a supernatural god uh, a special uh, a special um, uh, relationship that he has with us by the way and I, I simply want to say this because i think this will be interesting for those who are are uh, listening in uh, john and that is um if this book is fictitious then the book of Nahum, a hundred years later, Nahum, Nahum, we, right? Nahum. Um, a hundred years later, right. actually tackles the same group of people yeah. who have reverted back. See, that's that's important. And yeah, keep going. Have reverted back as a nation to their old behavior, and God judges them. But I also think that it's important to know that we have living Assyrians today, right? And do you know that those Assyrians every year have a three-day fast, right, in celebration honor. of and in reverence and honor. 
and recognition of this event. Yeah. So, so when we're talking about the the veracity of this, um, and and by the way, I think it's also important to mention this is not the only record where in 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 history uh, on a wide scale where a person has been recorded as being swallowed right. by a large there, fish. That's true. There's another case. Have extra biblical um, 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 evidence of that, even history that goes back to, I think, 1800s, early 1900s, near our period. So I think one has to be careful when uh, he or she pits their um, uh, prejudice and bias against the word of God, arguing that's so fantastic. If you serve a God who is supernatural, as it were, uh, then you anticipate that there will be some things that are indeed and in fact, fantastic, which I think are highlighted as the miraculous right. within Scripture because it's a flexation of God's muscle over and above our impotent muscularity. Right. Now, just as we get started, let's talk about real, real fast. Jonah is made up of four chapters. You have, I mean, a very short, um, very short book. Um, sort of the 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 first two chapters, you might say, are well, about Jonah. Then you have the last two, maybe about Nineveh. But yet there's an intermixing of that. And really, in, in one sense, it's all about Jonah. Uh, Jonah is the, is the main character in each of the chapters, or is, he's mentioned each one. The, the issue with the, the fish that, that swallows him uh, is a very small portion of the book. Um, it's, it doesn't take up a whole lot of space, but Jonah is the main character. Uh, Jonah, as as a, as a prophet of God, he's he's called by God to um, to bring a message uh, to the to the Assyrians. And what's interesting is we don't know exactly what time period. We we have a hunch that it's somewhere within the eighth century of when this took place uh, in um, in 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 history. Uh, in in the book of of Kings, in Second Kings, in chapter fourteen. It does mention his name, and it mentions a little bit about uh, who he was. And let me just read that portion of Scripture real fast, uh, sort of as a background. Uh, it says in Second Kings chapter 14, uh, verse 23, it says, In the 15, uh, 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, came, became, or was king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king of Samaria. And Samaria is another name for Israel. And reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, Jeroboam. That's Jeroboam II, I think. Uh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from the, all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. That's Jeroboam I. So you have Jeroboam II is taking power. He's also evil, just like Jeroboam I was. Um, and then it says, uh, but one thing that Jeroboam II was able to do in verse 25, 2 Kings 14, 25 says, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, uh, Arabah rather, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. There's a reference to Jonah. So Jeroboam II was able to expand the borders back to where they were in the time of David, uh, which tells you something that per, that how was he able to do this? Perhaps it is during the time when Assyria is not that strong. Okay, so in one sense you get a, a little background of okay at this point the Assyrians aren't that are, they're weakened actually, um, and Jonah prophesied as it says here 
that he would do this. Now, this prophecy is not mentioned within the book of Jonah, but the scripture here in 2 Kings 14 does mention that he prophesied this. Uh, and he says that this is the servant Jonah of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hepher, which is in Galilee, as we mentioned before. And then it says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor there was any helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved him by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, so that gives you a little bit of, of sort of historical context. It's somewhere within the, the 8th century BC, and there's perhaps uh, two, uh, two times within that, that century where it could be. One is during the rule of Adad Narari III. Uh, he is sort of closer to the 800, I think, uh, BC. And then the other one is more mid 8th century, say 760 is. Uh, which which you had uh, a more weakened uh, time period for the Assyrians. So here you have uh, 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 Ju- uh, Jonah being mentioned in Kings, Second Kings rather, uh, as prophesying that Jeroboam II, an evil king, but yet was able to expand the borders back to the time of David. And this was a time period when the Assyrians were weakened. And so there's a little bit of context, uh, perhaps. Uh, a receptive, uh, being uh, the Assyrians be more receptive to perhaps a message from God as well. And by the way, we also know that it had to be earlier. Um, in the 8th century, there's a greater probability that it right. was than not because he is a prophet during the period of the Northern Kingdom. Now, remember that the Northern Kingdom is going to be destroyed in the 700s. Right. And it's going to be taken away into captivity. Right. And so uh, he has to be during that earlier p- period. Uh, See, I'm, I'm, and just to, just to, well, I don't want to interrupt. No, go right ahead. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of um, uh, Assyria is, is a time of weakness. Okay, this is the Assyrian, this is going to be the Assyrian Empire that later takes in 722 the 10 Northern tribes, right? They're going to come in and take them. But at this point, they're weakened. So there's, uh, they're discouraged. There's a, dis- a great time of discouragement, of fear. They're battling with uh, nations to the north of them. Uh, they're sort of having weak leadership within. Um, they uh, have, they're not the same. At this point, they're not the strong Assyrian empire that they were previously. And then they will be again after uh, Tiglath-Blazer uh, comes back. Um, there's also a big plague that happens in the, in the mid-8th century. Uh, and then in 763, there's a total eclipse of the sun that happens. And I don't know if that happens, you know, at all these things contrived, pro- contrived together. together could have prepared the people of Assyria. Now, what's interesting is, is that he goes to Nineveh. And he goes, and the king of Nineveh, you know, calls for a repentance, right? Well, Nineveh is a city, and we're talking, uh, you know, we're talking about the Assyrian Empire. Perhaps is a time when the Assyrians, as 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 the the empire is weakened, that then you had individual city states or, or the individual cities that had their kings are more responsive as well. So, in one sense, the time period that that Jonah is sent is very significant. They are prepared. They are they're sort of ripe for this. Uh, which is interesting of how God brings things, you know. Often God brings your, the message that you need to hear when you're ready to hear it, you know. Sometimes you don't want to hear what God has to say. You know, your, your, your ears are plugged, your heart's hardened, and you just want to hear it, you know. And God has to do certain things to sort of 
get your attention, soften your heart, sort of work on you so that you're in a place to hear it. Because that's ultimately the thing is God wants his message to be heard and be responded to. And he allows certain things to happen to bring you to that point. And I think that's what's going on with the Assyrians at this time. Well, there's, there are things that conflict um, with our hearing. Uh, there are things that war against uh, our willingness to adhere, not just listen, but apply the truths of God right. at a given time. Um, in their situation, it's kind of interesting because uh, Nineveh had become one of the capitals of, of Assyria, of course, but it's interesting because this place sta- stands, the capital stands on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. Yeah. It has about 100 feet high walls, 50 feet thick. Uh, the, it was punctuated by 15 gates yes. with, with, uh, with uh, over seven and a half miles long the gates were, they were well protected. That was one big... <laughs> right. <laughs> big but they are somehow within the framework of these walls concerned, as you said, uh, about their enemies to the north. Right. And so God, through that moment of vulnerability, brought them to a place where they were not only willing to hear, right. but adhere to the word of the Lord, as well as the prophet's condition having risen from that large fish, right. gives credulity to his message in this day. Right. Uh, and all of these situations came together to say, this is God speaking to you. It would probably be in your best interest to listen. Right. And in fact, the result is this great people did, as we have record, listen to the word of the Lord, at least for this period of time. And by the way, the populi within this section alone was about 600,000 people. Right. And so there are, there are several things that would in fact argue to us that uh, this book is significant. Now, just to, before we get actually into the into the actual like first chapter, first absolutely <laughs> first verse, you know, which we were itching to get into. Um, it's significant that if you think about the period that the time frame of the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians, and this is a weak point for them. And of course, we know not to give the story away, but they are going to repent. The Ninevites are going to repent. But then later on, as you mentioned before, uh, the prophets Nahum and Zephaniah even does this too. They yes. both prophesy against about against uh, Nineveh. They're they're going to revert back to what they were before. I don't know the significance as far as of of how long that will be, or but it's it's interesting that 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 the next generation, so to speak, reverts back, and the significance of the fact that you know God speaks to one people in one time frame, and and of course. Oftentimes, the next generation does not um, understand or re- remember what it was like, you know, and understand, you know, maybe they didn't live through the time of repentance, you know, uh, of, of, of the Ninevites. And now the next one, when um, um, the Tiglath Blazer is, is actually, or Sennacherib, I think it is, I'm getting my, my, I'm getting my Assyrian kings mixed up here. Actually, uh, Tiglath Blazer is the next one. When he comes into power and strengthens, I don't not sure if they if they really remembered this. Uh, and God's actually going to use them to punish Israel. But that's 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 sort of like more of an overall context. Let's get into the, the actual text itself, okay? Mm. Um, so in chapter one, 
And uh, it starts off by saying, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors came, became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and fell uh, had fallen fa- uh, sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us now. On whose, on, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men, men uh, knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he, he had told them, So they said to him, What should we do for you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of this, account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, that you do not let us perish on this, the count of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou or you, O Lord, has done uh, as you has pleased. So then they pick him up, threw Jonah over, overboard into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging, and the men feared the Lord greatly, and he offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I read the, the first chapter just to sort of get a flow of what, what happens. It moves pretty quickly. Uh, the first chapter moves uh, fairly quickly from his call. It doesn't tell you a whole lot. Uh, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, and the Lord says, Arise, go to Nineveh, uh, that great city, and uh, preach against it because of its wickedness. Um, and then Jonah leaves. Now, that's, that's a fast, that's not your typical, sort of your typical prophetic introduction, you know, uh, maybe Jeremiah had or, or, uh, uh, or Isaiah had. You're going, um, uh, it doesn't tell you specifics on how the Lord's word came to Jonah. Uh, uh, it just says that God sends Jonah to the Ninevites to preach against them. That's significant because normally they would be preaching to Israel, but now he's being sent to to a foreign country. Yeah, there are several things that I think the the listeners should pay attention to when uh, looking at this first verse. 
uniquely uh, if the translators had articulated uh, what was actually in the framework of the Masoretic text. It starts off with what we refer to as a vav, right. so that it would be now right. or then. Now, interestingly enough, according to the Masoretic text and according to uh, historical Judaism, uh, with this book within the framework of the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevoim, the Ketuvim, uh, this is part of the Nevoim, the prophets. Prophets. But it's part of the Book of the Twelve. Right. And, and it's like the fifth or sixth, depending on which the fifth, version. Yes, yeah. the, the fifth book or the sixth, depending on which version you're looking at. And what's interesting is the rabbis considered this to be uh, part of a long narrative of the Twelve. Right. And so it's almost like a continuative story uh, of, the, of the historical salvific uh, hand of God, move of God, sovereignty of God, not only amongst his people, but amongst the nations. So the grammar uh, becomes of great importance when you're approaching this first verse. I think it's also important to note that this particular book differs from the normal style of prophetic hold, books. Hold on, let's back up a little bit. Because the fact that <laughs> the fact that the book starts with the Vav, mm -hmm. which is Hebrew for like and, or then, or now, which insinuates or implies a continuation of something that happened before. Yes. Which, of course, we have nothing written before this as far as Jonah itself. But as you were saying, it's connected with the Twelve, with the rest of the prophets. It's as if the message of the prophets are taken as one, especially what we call the minor prophets, you know, the, the smaller books. They're taken as one, and it's a message to, to his people the fact that Jonah is is attached to that as well tells you that it's that of course in one sense there is a message to Israel. Um, there is a message here in the book to Nineveh, which they're going to respond to that. But in the broader um, context of all these books being joined, there's a broader message to God's own people, of which the very first word indicates the vav. Yes, yes. It's also interesting um, that that it's different than many of the other prophetic books. Right. Um, and, and I think it's important to appreciate this because it's mostly narrative. Right. Whereas you will see within the major prophets or other books uh, situations of direct prophecy. Right. Of which you'll see right. a message presented to the uh, to the Ninevites in this text. Right. But that's not the majority of of the uh, the the literature or the space in the book. The majority is narrative. Now it is similar to aspects of one kings and two kings right. wherein we have a, a narrative concerning Elijah and Elisha. Right. So it is similar right. to other literature, uh, albeit um, it is not exactly like the majority of prophetic literature. Right. I think it's also interesting that when individuals read this book or hear us teaching this book, it's spoken of in the third person. So you'll hear Jonah spoken of right. as though he were not the author. Right. And that doesn't mean that he's not the author. We have a similar kind of a grammatical habit in the transitional testaments, namely the Gospel of John, right. where, where John speaks of himself in the third person. Right. And so it seems like uh, there are several things of a unique nature that are being approached here. And, and by the way, I want to say that this book is unique for another reason as we approach verse number one. And that is, this book is missiological, as you stated earlier, or evangelistic. By the way, this small book 
this this uh, wayward prophet, as it were, this reluctant prophet would probably be better phraseology. This reluctant prophet actually is the most successful missiological prophet in the, the whole the, of the First Testament. That, okay, think about that's funny. It is. I mean, think about that. Here's this this reluctant prophet who doesn't want the he doesn't, audience. He doesn't want the audience. He doesn't want to. I mean, we'll talk about why he doesn't want to do it. He, he doesn't want to do this. It'd be like preaching a service and saying, God, I pray, I beg you, allow no one to respond. Okay. That's his that's, sins. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, and we'll, we'll look at and see why he's like that, but he's not, he's not itching to go and preach this message um, uh, of, of repentance to his enemies. Uh, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, would have been Israel's enemies. It would be like telling a prophet to speak to Hitler and announce repentance to Hitler and the Nazis and the, and the prophet saying no because, because the chance that they may repent. And I really want them to be punished, you know? Not just a prophet speaking to Hitler and to the German people uh, who were involved in those circumstances, right? right? But it would be like one of the Israeli people during the time in which, during the framework of the Holocaust, being commissioned by God right. to tell the people, uh, repent. Right. And it would then be like those people repenting and God granting grace, favor, and blessing upon them in the face of that person who probably witnessed but, but, a great deal of, of, of the activity that had gone on at their hands. Okay, but isn't Jonah like like you and I? I mean, maybe not, maybe not like you, but no, <laughs> like, like me. Like humanity, because, like you know, us. Because listen, I mean, that's, it's okay. Because, you know, and that's, this speaks to the authenticity of the book, is that you have the consistency of God in Scripture, and you have the consistency of, of people in Scripture. Like you can read somebody that this is written in 800, well, 800 BC or let's say 750, but let's whatever century. Okay. Eighth century, 700s BC. It's, it's happening. People have not changed from that time until now. Yeah, sure. We travel faster in cars and we have smartphones, we have technology, but the part of people are the same. And, and I, in one sense, I can relate to Jonah. I don't want to, I want to talk to these people who have been hurting my people for, and, you know, and, and have been attacking, you know, and, and been a threat and not, not really nice, you know, part of me and the human side of me that says, yeah, I want them to, to suffer. I want the Ninevites to, 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 to perish, you know, because of the things that they've done wrong, you know, and I can imagine if you're in the Holocaust, and that was a terrible, terrible time. I can imagine if, if God had told a, a rabbi to preach, you know, this message to them and that he would, would say no, because, you know, of these people deserving to be punished, you know, it, it's you know you understand the Assyrians when they were in their their power. I mean they were ruthless. You know I mean we we know what happens when they took the the ten tribes later on. Um, they were a ruthless empire. They were they were very. I mean they they would haul you away with hooks in your nose. You know they were just were, were just were not nice. They were nice and and in one sense I can understand why Jonah says no. Um, not me, because I don't want to see them, to, you know, be saved or repent. Because I want to see them punished. You know. Well, well, John, what's interesting is historically, not only did they lead people away with hooks in their noses, that's the people who lived. Right. They actually would build pyramids or mounds 
of nothing but human skulls yeah, yeah. of their victims. So, so they were not just hard, they were callous and, and very cruel, like overtly yes. and over, uh, over the top yes. in their cruelty, right? And, and so when you're looking at something like this, this is where some of the symbolism, not, not allegorizing the narrative, not making it parabolic in nature, but this is where you can appreciate some of the symbolism within the framework of the text. In verse number one, and we'll get to the word of I am in the text, but in verse number one, it says, the word of I am came to Jonah. Now, get this. His name means dove. Dove. Son of Amittai. His name means true. Truth. Now, yeah. here's what's interesting. A dove is associated with, with a, a fowl or an animal that is supposed to represent purity. Right. Uh, uh, it's supposed to, in fact, be representative in the uh, transitional testaments of the spirit right. of God. Or peace. Uh, or peace, right, right in, in Genesis chapter number eight and nine, as it were. Uh, it's also supposed to, supposed to be representative of the believer's disposition or characteristic. Right. Be as, as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. But here is this prophet whose name represents something that is contradistinctive to his feelings and emotions. Right. No, no is that's no, again, leave it to God to do something like that. To to, you know, to 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 name you and call you and to appoint you to one thing and you to be the opposite. I mean, it's I don't think I don't think God looks on the uh, looks on the on the horizon and says there's Jonah. His name's name's Dove because he is a dove and he is a man of peace and he's a man of, of purity and all this. No, he doesn't even live up to his name. He doesn't, he's, he's the kind of guy who doesn't want to bring peace to uh, his enemies. Yet God has called him to that. And I think in, in one sense, it's kind of funny, you know, the, 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 the man whose name peace and dove and, and think, you know, is supposed to, is supposed to be this way and bring this is completely opposite. He doesn't live up to his name. Um, but I think it's funny that God would do that. Would God would choose the, the the unlikely person in the story to he, he could have probably chosen somebody else that had said, "Yeah, sure, I'll go." But here's a guy who says, uh, "No, no, I rather I rather die than go there." You know, it's the quintessential picture of irony, isn't it? Yeah, and it also marks for us the way of God. If you put the phrase together, the word of "I am" comes to who? an individual, not only to them, but will ultimately or inevitably come through an individual who is not consistent with the heart of God, right. not consistent with the message. Yeah. It, let me rephrase it in this way. Oft God will speak to the person who has been most hurt to deliver a message of forgiveness. Right. The person who has been most disappointed to deliver a message of of hope, right? The person who has been uh, 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 lied on or or damaged in some way. In other words, God does not necessarily work in the way that we would like Him to. He works consistent with His character. And by the way, through circumstances and through transformation worked on our heart, enables us to align ourselves with his message so that his message can take root in us right so that it might be delivered through us no it's interesting as 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 we had said before that the time period of the assyrians that this was a time period when they were most receptive perhaps they were weakened 
uh, all these other thing, things we had mentioned, the eclipse and the plagues and being weak, and they were ripe for this time. Could it be also that the, that the man of God was also ripe for this time as well? It's just as they were in a position where God needed them to be no receptive. Jonah is also in this position, though it seems like he's not. Uh, he's in a position because not that he's going to go and willingly and say embrace this whole thing, but where God can use this 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 message, this uh, calling, uh, this um, uh, journey, so to speak, uh, to sort of reach reach Jonah as well. I mean, it seems like that's there's a message to reach the Ninevites, and there's also a message to reach Jonah himself. And maybe by implication, the rest of Israel, because I think that perhaps Jonah's attitude is representative. is representative of the rest of the people. And he speaks for them, and he has the same feelings as them and same attitudes. And in one sense, God has to speak to both and get them in both the same place. They have to see different, different sides. You know, the Nevites have to see uh, their sin, repentance. But yet, at the same time, the people of God have to see their own attitudes um, towards those. And and I think God has somebody like Jonah who who is, in one sense, is going to be ripe for having to hear this, this message and hear this truth. It raises theological issues pertaining to the sovereignty of God and the character of God uh, concerning compassion. Right. And here, God weds his compassion to a non-compassionate prophet. Right. Pertaining to a people who do not deserve compassion, but here's the thing: here's the, here's the real ironic thing: neither Israel nor the prophet desire for this message to be given to these obstinate, cruel people. But here's the question: Jonah, Israel, if you don't want God to have compassion on them, why do you really want Him to have compassion on you right. when you're the obstinate? stiff-necked people who are refusing to hear his word. Don't you want him to care about you? And so it becomes a reflection, as it were. Be careful when you don't want God to give someone else what you may desperately need God to give you in short order. You know, it's, it's, I think it's very relevant even as Christians today. Um, Oftentimes we, um, we sort of look at the world and the people of the world, and we get disgusted. And we say, well, how can they do such and such? How can these people be this way, you know? And we have very little compassion. Sometimes the church is the place where you find the least compassion. Oftentimes people feel more accepted in in a bar or in a, in a, in a place that's not a church, you know, and they yes. feel the most judged at church because, you know, we're supposed to live a certain way. And it's unfortunate that we, as, as the body, I'm not speaking for everybody because there's a lot of people in the body of Christ, but in one sense, we are called as Christians to love the unlovable and to be gracious and compassionate to people who, as God refers to, to the Ninevites, people who don't know their left hand from their right hand, who don't know right from wrong. God, God calls his people to be his representatives and oftentimes we forget that message. We forget that's our calling uh, to preach that kind of message of, of, of love and grace of God. And we want to be like Jonah and sit back with the popcorn and say, oh, get him, God, and destroy him. We want to be, you know, God's, God's judgment. Little do we know that God describes himself as a God of compassion. 
full of grace. I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked, yeah. says I am. Yeah. And, and by the way, this first phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, that's how you know it was God's word. Right. Because the character of it was so distinct from the person who either wanted to hear it or deliver it that it had to be God's word. Right. It, the, the greater question is not, did it come audibly? Did it come sensationally by a sense or an understanding? The greater question is not how it came, but that it came and the content of its coming gives evidence that it has the divine impress. And here's another reason how you know it's the word of God. Because of what he calls you to do. He calls you to do something that you're going to have to lean on him tremendously in order to fulfill that. He calls you to something like Jonah to do something you don't want to do so that you can rely on him and trust in him. And you don't understand. Maybe you don't agree. God, I don't agree with what you're doing here. But here, God, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah to call him to preach message of repentance and, and, and compassion and forgiveness to someone who's unwilling, who says, I would rather, I will, I'll flee, I'll go, I'll go the opposite direction, thinking that I'm going to escape that, when God is still going to bring him back. My, my, I guess my point is this, is that it takes a whole lot of faith and trust on Jonah's part, or maybe God has called you, as you're listening, to do something that's like, what? Why am I supposed to do that? How come God, how come why not this? This would be safer. This would be easier to do. And God often calls us into circumstances and situations and, and, and calls us to do certain things that re- help us or cause us to rely on him even greater. And that's really, that's a benchmark. Um, can you, does it cause, when you, okay, anybody can stay in the boat, but it takes somebody like a Peter to walk on the water with Jesus and says, okay, I've never done this before. This is, I'm going to have to really rely on God to do this. This is how you know the word of God comes to you, where it causes you to have to rely on God himself, uh, where it's bigger than yourself, where it's maybe not something that goes along with your politics or the way you think God, how he do something, how he does something, uh, or, or how, he, how he works. But you know it fits the character of God. God is a God who calls uh, his enemies, who loves his enemies, who reaches out with compassion to people, um, who, who wants to give um, more chances than not, you know? As you read in the prophets, as you know, people think God's a God of judgment all over the place. No, he, he gives all kinds of warning, years and years and years and years. God would rather reach out his hand to save someone than to sit back with arms folded and say, you're judged. You know, I, 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 I get the sense here that God is revealing who he is, not only to the Ninevites, but to Jonah himself and to the people of God, that he is more compassionate than you and me. He gives more grace than you and me, where our grace would have run, run out a long time ago. Uh, his grace goes even beyond that, and it amazes us even more. Yeah, within the framework of verse number one, 
it suggests that the word of I am, which is interesting because the Tetragrammaton, uh, this particular phrase that is used uh, of the name of God argues for his covenantal relationship right. with uh, the nation of Israel. But here, this covenantal God is reaching outside of that covenantal framework to a larger framework of his people, right. uh, his people that he cares about. And that word is going to be communicated to someone who can't necessarily appreciate uh, what God is doing. This is what I think is important for us to to highlight in, in our time together. Today, namely, how do you know when it's the word of the Lord? When it's not like your character, hmm. when it's more loving than you could be, more compassionate, more merciful than you could be, more understanding than you can be, when it's more long-suffering than you have the capacity of your own uh, self to, to even fathom. It, it will stretch you not to the end of your capacity, but it will introduce you to a divine capacity, a capacity of the characteristic of a God that we not only love, not only do we need him, but a God, should we ever come into those circumstances, we will celebrate, thank you for not only being a God of compassion to those who I would prefer not to love, to like, to, to, to help, but thank you for being my help in times of trouble when I clearly am undeserving of it.